0: the blaze radio network on demand
1: and go for mike slater in three two one you're listening to mike slater part of the next generation of talk radio only on the blaze radio network
2: is america's the greatest country in the world happy saturday thanks for being i hope you have a good weekend um Lot to do, as always. super glad you're here. Quick friendly reminder, my book's still available, of course, how to change someone's Mind. You can buy that on Amazon. Uh, oh, and I started I mm, haven't talked about this yet. Now nah, I'll talk about it next week. Uh, if you go to our Facebook page, you'll see all you'll see the announcement there. So search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook and let's hang out there throughout the rest of the week. I hate we can only hang out on Saturday, so uh, Facebook's the best way to stay in touch. and then on Facebook you'll see the announcement of a new project that we are embarking on as well. But in the meantime, we got a good three hours planned for you here. So I want to do our, uh, our Statue of Liberty segment to kick off our three hours here. I feel like a Statue of Liberty segment comes up every once in a while. I think we did a short one last week, but um, this is important stuff to know because it will always keep coming up forever. Uh, this is in reaction to the clip that I'm sure you heard between Stephen Miller, the White House press secretary guy and Jim Acosta, the CNN anchor, about Trump's immigration proposal. And they're going back and forth. And, and Jim Acosta brought up the Statue of Liberty. Uh, and he said, what you're proposing, the CNN guy said, what you're proposing doesn't seem and does not sound like it's keeping with American tradition when it comes to immigration. And then he looks at his notes and says, the Statue of Liberty says, <laughs> which I just... We just need to pause on that. The Statue of Liberty says... So this comes up every few months. Let's uh, let's chat about it. Every time someone brings up the Statue of Liberty, remind them that it's the Statue of Liberty, not the Statue of Immigration. It's called liberty enlightening the world. Telling the people all over the world that you too should institute a government that protects people's liberty. It was not the statue of immigration to light the path to come here for everyone in the world to come here. The poem may have done that, but the poem isn't law. The poem isn't policy. The Statue of Liberty says, like that's not the same as saying, well, statute four thirty two of of Act like that's that's statute and statue are different thing there may be a statute of liberty that says something it's a law but the statue of liberty it doesn't matter what it says it's it's a poem oh but slater why are you being such a hate monger the statue represents so much to the immigrants who came here on boats to new york city Okay, let's chat about that. Uh, Immigrants did not go to the Statue of Liberty. They actually did not even go to New York City. They went to Ellis Island. So if anyone, you're talking to someone and they bring up the Statue of Liberty, make sure you also get into a conversation about Ellis Island. Because that's what really matters. It it matters less what the Statue of Liberty represents and more what Ellis Island was. So I think we did talk a little bit about this last week or two weeks ago. let, Let me do that quick and then I want to go a little deeper. Um... If you've been to Ellis Island, it's a giant hall, a big room. And on the side are all these examination rooms. So if they saw you get off the boat and stop because you were short of breath, they pulled you aside and checked you for heart problems. They checked everyone for goiters, fungal infections, ringworm. They gave you a psych exam. The big inspection was the eye exam. They looked for trachoma. It's an eye infection. And before antibiotics, you could go blind. It was super contagious. Here's the key with this. If you did not pass the health exam or the psych exam, they put you back on the boat. I just feel like we have this perception that you got here, you stepped foot, you were here, that's it. No, they put you back and they sent you back. Now here's the the most important part of this. Who paid for that? Most of these people were super poor and and every dime they had, they paid to get here. It was a one-way ticket. But now we're sending them back. So who paid for their trip back? The steamship company, the boat company, paid for them to go back. Which means that company, the steamship company, had a major incentive to not even let on board certain people if they knew that they wouldn't be accepted in Ellis Island, right? So my point is there are two checks you have the check at Alice Island and the doctors are like, mm, I don't think so. You got trachoma back on the boat. But before that, before they even left England or wherever the boat was leaving, before they even left that port, they had the boat people saying, I don't think so. <laughs> you definitely got trachoma. Your You're out. Because if they put them on the boat and send him to Ellis Island, Ellis Island would have put them right back on the boat and the boat company would have had to pay for them to go back. So there were two checks before people got approved, allowed to go into America. Uh, Charlie Martin, who, who's uh, someone I'm, I'm enjoying his writing more and more. He talks about his grandmother who came to this country in 1904, which was the year after the poem was put to the base of the statue. Um, and he remembers his grandmother talking about Ellis Island and how frightening it was. I, I don't know what people's perception of Ellis Island was, but You know, it's probably very Disney-esque or very... It's like a Budweiser commercial, right? Where you have the the poor immigrant coming across and then they see the Statue of Liberty and they get off on Ellis Island and it's this grand, triumphant entrance into America. Mm, No, pretty scary because they really were not sure if they were going to be sent back or not. They could very easily turn you around. I have here in front of me Section 12 of the Immigration Act of 1903. This 1903, the same year that the Emma Lazarus poem was put on the statue. Uh, here are all the things that you needed to enter or you needed to, to uh, present before you, you were allowed it. You needed name, uh, age, sex, married or single, calling or occupation. Were you able or are you able to read or write? Hmm. That's interesting because Donald Trump, one of his proposals and some of the Republicans because my understanding, it was a, some Republicans proposal and Donald Trump just sort of signed on to it or agreed to it. Um, so one of the proposals is you have to be able to know English. Well, that was also one of the requirements of the Immigration Act of 1903, the same year that the poem was put on the statue. Your uh, what nation you're from, your race, your last residence, your final destination. Uh, here's some more. Again, this is the, the Section 12 of Act of 1903. Whether the alien has paid his own passage or paid by another person or a corporation, society, municipality, or government, and if so, by whom, whether in possession of $30, I don't know why 30 and if less, how much, whether going to join a relative or friend, and if so, what relative or friend, and his name and complete address, whether ever before in the United States, and if so, when and where, whether ever in prison Or almshouse or an institution or hospital for the care and treatment of the insane or supported by charity. Whether a, so do you have a criminal record? Whether a polygamist, whether an anarchist. And what is the alien's condition of health, mental and physical? And whether deformed or crippled and if so, for how long and from what cause? Uh, So those are the questions you needed to answer. So it wasn't just game on, come on in. This is a chart from October 1903. There are four classes that they would put people in when you arrive. Class one was uh, people who were dangerous and contagious. So it would disease. Class two, insanity and idiocy. Class three, loathsome. I feel like I may be in that one. The loathsome category. Uh, and class four, likely to become a public charge. That means welfare. So likely to be put on public assistance or to need public assistance. So dangerous and contagious. So disease, insanity and idiocy, not smart, loathsome, just generally (laughs) not good and likely to become a public charge poor. So those are the four classifications that you were put in uh, for the people who were sent back. Really? None of those are any different from what the Republicans are proposing, especially that last one, likely to become a public charge. One of the proposals is that you need to be able to pay for your own health care. And not sign up for government health care. And that's what they asked of immigrants in 1903 as well. What's your likelihood of becoming a public charge? That's all we're asking again today. And I don't want to hear anyone say that illegal immigrants can't sign up for free benefits. Of course they can. I think it was last week we read a letter from Medi-Cal. So this is a medi that's, uh, uh that's California's uh, health insurance for low-income people. Medi-Cal. So they sent an email or excuse me, a letter out to everyone and it said if you are an undocumented immigrant we don't care come sign up for medi-cal that's not our business we won't ask we're not connected with ice or anything if you need health insurance you come to us doesn't matter what your status is i i don't have it in front of me now but i had a picture last week i think we talked about last week i had a picture of it right right in front of me the picture of the letter that they sent out so, yes, illegal immigrants get public benefits. Now, in October 1903, people deported. 30 were likely to become a public charge. One person was loathsome. One was insane, and 61 had diseases. Those, all, all those people were put back on the boat, sent back. That's just October 1903. And remember, that's the second test. The first check was whether they let someone on the boat on the first place at all. So the poem, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free. That's great. Beautiful poem. The actual immigration policy of that exact same year and that time was to admit healthy immigrants who could support themselves, which is pretty much what Republicans are suggesting today. one I want to come back and talk about a meritocracy. And I want to talk about letting, quote unquote, letting people in. You know, when we talk about letting people in, we usually refer to immigrants coming into America. But there's another major institution in America that involves, quote, letting people in. That the progressives are in control of. And they're pretty demanding themselves. And actually pretty racist, too, about it. We'll talk about that next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
0: You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network.
2: Mike but I want to play a clip here. This is uh, the great Dennis Prager, a brilliant man. He was giving uh, or he was a part of a debate at Oxford and the debate was about Hamas and Israel. Partway through his his opening point, an Oxford professor stands up to ask a question and listen to how brilliantly Prager responds to this. Two, two quick notes before we start it. Uh, there's two two SAT words in here. Profundity. Profundity means insight he says something like mm, i i don't quite see the profundity of your question i don't see like why your question is that insightful is what he's saying uh and then the other word is benighted which at first sounds like a good thing when i first heard it because i thought of like a knight like a knight in shining armor and you're benighted you're you become a knight that's good uh, but it's not k it's like knight as in darkness so it's to uh be put in the dark so it's to be in a in a deep state of ignorance, like a sad, pitiable, pathetic state of ignorance. So, profundity and benighted, those are the SAT words of the day. Here is Dennis Prager. Please.
0: So all of the organizations that you're citing as a threat to peace just happen to be Arab
2: and or Muslim. Could you explain to me why you think that might be the case, that you only view these organizations as threats to peace?
0: I don't.
3: Okay,
4: you, you, obviously those of you who applauded perceive the profundity of the question that I didn't. I don't quite understand. They are all a threat to peace, that is correct. Why did I only pick on Arab Muslim? I said Boko Haram, that is not Arab.
1: Arab and or Muslim?
4: Yes, Arab and or Muslim, that is correct. The only beheading groups in the world today to the best of my knowledge are Arab or Muslim.
1: Why do you think that is in your estimation? Why do I think
4: that is? Sad to say, it was answered by Arab intellectuals at the United Nations because the Arab world is a a benighted place at this time. The status of women is particularly low. The Arab world translates fewer books in a year than uh, in 10 years than Greece. The entire Arab world translates fewer books than Greece does in one year. There was no interest in the foreign world. It is a benighted world, the Arab world. It is a tragedy. This is not anti-Arab. If you love Arabs, you have to understand how low the level, the moral level of the Arab world at this point is. And that has nothing to do with individual Arabs who may be saintly. But that is the, that is the dominant moral f- state. You are taught that you cannot judge civilizations as if Britain and, and, uh, uh, and Mali are on the same uh, moral level. That is, to, that is to give up on hope for humanity to claim that there is no civilization that has produced something better than something else. So, that, that, that is the mm. tragic reason they're not beheading people uh, in, in Western civilization. They are in the Arab and Muslim worlds, and not the entire Muslim world. Let me stop there. So now, why the- I love
2: that line. To, to say we can't distinguish between civilizations is to say that there is no civilization that has ever produced something better than someone else. And that is not only wrong, but that is the opposite of enlightened. Right? We're told that to think that, to, to think in this multicultural uh, lie, that that's the enlightened thing to believe. Uh, it is quite the opposite. We don't need more Yemen culture or Saudi culture here in the United States of America. We need to be able to intellectually define aspects of different cultures and discuss things that are compatible maybe even talk about things that are that are that are better of some other cultures some other aspects of other cultures that are better than ours and and maybe think about bringing uh more of that into America and actually being more of that here in America for instance uh, uh in Asian cultures there's more respect for elders right so maybe that's something we should be more of here in America and we should allow different cultures in here that also have that same thing too, right? I mean, and I understand it's difficult to socially engineer a nation, right? That's not exactly what I'm talking about, but to, to, to totally throw the whole concept of a difference in culture uh, the, in the difference of cultures is, is uh clearly not wise. All cultures are not the same. I ask again, what part of Yemen's culture do you want more of here in America? Last week we talked about a very, very simple difference. I think if you were to take two cultures that are most alike, it'd be American culture and British culture, and that would make sense, right? I mean, we came from England, right? So that, that those are the two cultures that are most alike. And last week we told the story of uh, washing machines, washers, and dryers in London and England, and you are all of Europe are total garbage. They're the Easy Bake Oven of appliances. They're absolute, they're t- atrocious, and everyone knows they're terrible. They don't wash your clothes that's what they put up with them because their culture and it's always been this way at least the last 200 years their culture has always been to accept things the way they are keep calm and carry on right that's their very that's their mantra in, in, in England this is uh, from an anthropologist she wrote a book called watching the English she said that the British have a mindset of a sense of passive resigned acceptance an acknowledgement that things will invariably go wrong. That life is full of little frustrations and difficulties and that one must simply put up with it. Now we use the silly example of washers and dryers, right? That's a little frustration and difficulty when your clothes don't get clean and your shirts don't get dry, but they just put up with it. <laughs> just meh, It's the way it goes. Not in America. We'll never put up with that. Not a million years. We would put up with dryers that don't work. Properly, (laughs) don't dry your clothes. But we also shouldn't, like the British are, put up with an invasion of Muslim immigrants that have a completely different Sharia culture that is transforming their society in profound ways, right? They have a similarly resigned acceptance to that. I bring this up only because if you were to pick two cultures in the world that are most alike, it's England and America, and even our two cultures have a pretty drastic difference between them does that mean that all people of different cultures are bad of course not but why mix different cultures when it's not necessary and when we have a choice 1-888-933-93 join us on facebook search for the mike slater show on facebook coming up next want to talk about uh something going on in our cal state university system you're not going to believe this next mike slater show spread the word
1: This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on
0: the Blaze Radio Network.
1: 9 hundred thirty three ninety three Mike
2: Slater is on Sorry, Crusaders forget about understanding and studying other cultures. that's not what multiculturalism is about. It never was about understanding other cultures it was just about hating our own but um, forget about that even I'm talking about reading, writing and math. Uh, I have seen no better example of the failure of the K through12 education system specifically in California than what I'm going to share with you next. The example that I've been going to the last month or so about the failure of the K-12 system in America is the story of six high schools in Baltimore. Actually, to be fair, I think it's five high schools and a middle school. So six schools, big, like, normal-sized schools, so hundreds of kids. S- six schools, not one student who can read at grade level. Not one out of six schools, there's not a single student who can read at grade level. It used to be you have six schools and maybe there's one student who can't. Now it's there's not even one student who can. How do you, you you literally can't get worse than that. But I want to share a specific California story. We've talked before about the percentage of kids who go on to college who have to take remedial classes. So in California, we have three levels of higher education. You have community college. And then above that, you have the Cal State system. And above that, you have the UC system, University of California. So you have community college, above that Cal State, and then the UC system, like Berkeley. Uh, we So UC would be the smart kid, the smartest kids go to UC. 20% of kids who go to the UC system have to take remedial classes because they can't read and write and do math in the UC system. It's 40%, 40% of kids who graduated high school who go on to the, UC, the excuse me the Cal state system. 40% have to take remedial classes, which obviously makes you think, well, how could they have graduated in the first place? How could they have gotten into college? They still have to take remedial classes. So Cal State says, whoa, Jesus, way too many kids who are taking remedial classes. We have to uh, we have to solve this problem. So you know what they decided to do? They just got rid of all the remedial classes. Gone. No more. No more remedial classes. What? Uh, here's our local paper. Currently, students who enter Cal State without demonstrating... I don't know how many... I think there's maybe 20 Cal States across the, across the state... Uh, students who enter Cal state without demonstrating college readiness in math and or English are required to take up to three traditional remedial classes before they're allowed to enroll in courses that count towards their degrees. If students do not pass these remedial courses during the first year, they are removed from university roles. The problem with these non-credit remedial courses is they cost students more time and money, keep many in limbo and often frustrate them to the point that some eventually drop out. So because of that, they just got rid of them. And I know you're asking, well, but they don't know how to read and write. And getting rid of the courses doesn't, they still don't know how to read and write. No, no, don't worry. They're replacing it with something. What are they replacing it with? Uh, Students and faculty will spend the next year coming up with new and creative curriculum in math and English for first-year students. Hm, that's awesome. New and creative curriculum, which I guarantee you will result in kids not knowing how to read, write, or do math at the end of that year. But they're going to spend the next year coming up with it. Isn't that amazing? So I, I, I'm i a loss for for words, honestly, with this whole thing. This is so incredibly frustrating. You have high school kids, or kids graduating high school who can't read and write. They go to college, still can't read and write, 40% of them which again is a huge indictment on the K through 12 system. But then they go to this Cal state, they go to college. And instead of Cal state trying to improve their reading and writing or better yet, I think not accepting them if they can't read and write in the first place, they just say, well, whatever. (laughs) And just keep them in school. Keep these kids in college, not knowing how to read and write. What the heck? Imagine you're a professor. Let's say you're a uh, philosophy professor or heck psychology, whatever. And, you have now all these students who can't communicate their thoughts to other people. That's what, I mean, that's why it's important to be able to, so it's important to be able to read so you can listen to other people's thoughts. It's important to be able to write so that you can communicate your thoughts. And there are kids who can't do that. They don't know how to spell. They don't have proper grammar. They, they don't, they can't turn a phrase. They can't write out their ideas. And you're a psychology professor and and you're, you're grading papers of people who have the the ability of a of an eighth grader. What is this? And you know Cal State's just going to graduate these kids now, still not knowing how to read or write. So there's three reasons why Cal State is really doing this. They're not going to say this out loud, but these are the three real reasons. Number one, it's all about graduation rates. Uh, This is from the article Cal state has committed to doubling its four year graduation rate from 19% to 40% by 2025. So right now the Cal state graduation rate is 19%. What What the heck is that? That's awful. 19% of kids graduate. Wow. Um, So they just want to increase the graduation rates because then that, uh, you know, Oh, look, more kids are graduating. That means we're doing a better job teaching. Reason number two is that colleges, and this is true across the country, colleges think that students are customers. This has changed in the last couple decades here, This, this idea that students are customers. They're not. They shouldn't be. Because if college kids are customers, it means they're always right. And it means that they will be catered to and served and treated like kings. I want to play, coming up a little later, a clip of Adam Carolla. I'll give the context to it in a second here. But Adam Carolla has a great line. He says, yeah, yeah, kids are the future but adults are the present and adults need to be in charge today. And if we don't do a good job of that, then we're going to screw up our kids and therefore our future. So this is the head of Cal state. He says, having so many students start their freshman year, being told that they're already behind. Check this out. Doesn't help foster a sense of social or academic belonging. So do you see what it's about? It's all about your a student's, a customer's sense of social belonging. Or even their sense of academic belonging. What does that mean? Do Do you know how to read and write? If you don't, then you shouldn't feel academic belonging. You should feel like you don't belong. And you should be inspired, therefore, to fix that. And learn to read and write and do math. So then you will start feeling like you belong. Because right now, quite frankly, you don't. So instead of helping the kids who don't know how to read and write, learn to read and write, they're saying, no one needs to know how to read and write. (laughs) And this is college. The third reason they're doing this, it's all affirmative action stuff. This is the chancellor of the community college system. Uh, She says, this is the right approach for all of public higher education. I personally strongly believe that standardized placement exams have handicapped hundreds of thousands of our students. And they particularly target low-income students and students of color. We've been putting many students in remedial courses that don't belong in those courses and making it harder for them to complete their college education. Total nonsense. Um, No one's targeted. Just because someone puts in a standard, and if certain people don't meet that standard, that doesn't mean you're targeted for it. Low-income students are not targeted. Students of color are not targeted. Let's say that low-income students and students of color are less likely to pass the standards. That still doesn't mean they're targeted. But the fact that they are doesn't mean that it has to be that way. And actually, it's wildly insulting to these kids to say that they are being targeted and that they have no hope. I want to share a quick story here from Thomas Sowell. Uh, Again, black rednecks and white liberals, please buy this book. I'll put it on my uh, Twitter page right now, Slater Radio on Twitter. I'll put a link to it. Please, please buy this. It's required reading. It's an incredible book. 1898, Dunbar High School in in Washington, D.C. There were four public high schools in D.C. Three of them were white. One was black. Dunbar was the black school. In the standardized tests, 1898, so we're just a few generations outside of slavery, the black school, the kids at the black school performed better than any of the white schools. This was true. Dunbar's success all the way into the seventies. Now in the seventies, you had a bunch of black activists who wanted to keep black people down in order to justify their own activist existence. So they started saying that, Oh, well Dunbar was successful because these black kids come from the middle class, the class of 1892, 1892, the occupations of the parents, there were 51 laborers, 25 messengers, 12 janitors, and one doctor. That is hardly middle-class. Thomas Sowell tells the story in the book of how uh, someone wrote a magazine article about him, and a really nice magazine article, and it was about how Thomas Sowell grew up in Harlem and then went on to become an academic. He spent the last couple decades of his academic career at at Stanford. And when this magazine article was released, he got a letter from uh, from a black man around the same age who was a lawyer, a big high-powered lawyer who said he was amazed at the magazine's tone that Thomas Sowell's experience from Harlem to academia was unique or unusual. Like, oh my gosh, look, this this man grew up in Harlem and went on to be successful? What? So here's this lawyer reading that saying, what are you talking about? This is Thomas Sowell. He, the lawyer, had grown up in Harlem during those years, just a few blocks from me. From the tenement building in which he lived came children who grew up to become a doctor lawyer a priest and college president indeed where did today's black middle class come from if not such places and such schools so if if black students were able to to succeed in 1898 low income students of color in 1898 were able to succeed not just based on their own standard but based on better than the white kid that was true in 1898, but we're, we're telling kids today that it's not possible? In 2017? So many excuses from the adults who are supposedly there to help kids succeed and thrive. This is so bad. It's so pathetic. No more remedial classes at Cal State. Not because no one needs them, but because everyone. It's all now just remedial, isn't it? One eight eight i am going to put that book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals by the Great Thomas Sowell on my Twitter right now. Slater Radio on Twitter. Please buy it right the second. It is fantastic. It is perspective blowing. This is a book where I, I had to stop underlining because I was just underlining every single paragraph it's every single word is gold it's amazing check out slater radio on twitter i'll put a link to it there right now mike slater show the blaze radio network spread the word
0: you're listening to
2: mike slater
0: on the blaze radio network
1: This is Mike Slater.
2: My last point here, and then I want to talk about artificial intelligence, which these kids will be in for a rude awakening when they don't have any jobs when they graduate anyway. But um, we're doing our kids no favors. There's no no surprise that there's a correlation between great inflation, uh, lowering of standards, a removal of of real curriculum, a removal of the classics, a removal of Western literature, uh, and 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 again, just a general lowering of the standards, and an increase in anxiety and depression from younger generation. There's a direct correlation between those two things for a reason. Julie Hames is a mental health professional at Stanford, and she says. Well, she did a study of 100,000 college students over 153 campuses and said that within the last 12 months, 84% of kids felt overwhelmed, 60% felt very sad, 57% felt very lonely, 51% felt overwhelming anxiety, and 8% seriously considered suicide. So what do these kids have? What do what they, what do they have to feel sad about? I <sighs> think about it, like life is way better than any time ever kids have more access to information and books and spiritual connections and people than ever before. We have more leisure time than ever before. So why are people so overwhelmed and sad and lonely and full of anxiety? I only have two minutes here, but in short helicopter parents, helicopter parents and, and and, us and uh, adults that adults that pamper, their kids and systems like the university system that protects instead of builds. It's the classic line that we use all the time in the show. Are you preparing the child for the way or, or are you preparing the way for the child? Are you preparing the child for the way or preparing the way for the child? Uh, This is what this Stanford person says. When children aren't given the space to struggle through things on their own, They don't learn to solve problems very well. They don't learn to be confident in their own abilities and it can affect their self-esteem. The other problem with never having to struggle is you never experience failure and people can develop an overwhelming fear of failure and of disappointing others. And the low self, both the low self-confidence and the fear of failure can lead to depression or anxiety. So you see that lowering of the standards, removal of Difficult curriculum, removal of Western literature, removal of all these things that make kids stronger and give them an identity and a purpose and a connection with the past and a reason for the future. You eliminate all those things and the fear of failure and anxiety will continue to go up and you will be more and more depressed. There's a direct correlation between those two things. So we think we're helping our kids by protecting them and by preparing the way for them, but we're only doing them great damage prepare the child for the way. Mike Slater shall spread the word.
1: You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network.
2: America's the greatest country in the world. Thank you for being here. Happy Saturday. Um, I want to talk about some artificial intelligence. Again, we're gonna talk a lot about it forever. Until it slams all of us in the face, and I'm not I don't feel like I'm the only one talking about it anymore. So I'm watching this speech given by the CEO of IBM. Real quick, let me tell you why I'm talking about this so much. So I think that uh, almost everyone's job will be replaced by a machine. And I feel like this will be different than the industrial revolution where 99% of Americans were farmers and now less than 1% of Americans are farmers, but that doesn't mean 98% of people are unemployed, right? We found other jobs, but because it worked that way during the industrial revolution and the agricultural revolution, that doesn't necessarily mean that's what's going to happen here during the ai revolution Uh, i i think new jobs will obviously be created but there's a big difference here and as we talked about last week i i've told people before that if you know for if you're younger you don't want to go into fast food you should go into computer programming but now we have artificial intelligence which is doing computer programming so we have computer programming that's programming computers. So even the computer programmer's job is going to be replaced by artificial intelligence. And I think almost everyone's will. And that's why I think it's very important. And then I'm not sure what society looks like when no one works. It's bad enough in a society where 10% of Americans aren't working. What does it look like when 90% of Americans aren't working? I don't know. I'm not sure. So I'm watching this speech given by the CEO of IBM. And she's saying all the... Well, I was going to say she's saying all the things we've been saying, but I, I'm, I've been saying all the things that she and other people who are talking about AI have been saying and how it's going to take over everything and change everything. And she used the example that we used, uh, that there will be no more radiologists anymore. I don't think there will be any more doctors anymore. I was talking about this on a Facebook Live. So I should, I'm sorry, I should say this. We do, I do a Facebook Live. I try to do one every day. Sometimes I may miss a day here and there, but I've just started doing this, a Facebook Live from uh, my house. Uh, Every day. So the other day we were talking about AI. And the next day someone sent me a video of a machine taking someone's blood. I don't think there will be doctors anymore. Very soon. I think really the only humans in the healthcare field are going to be counselors. They're going to be people who have the emotional intelligence to be the go between a machine and the patient. But doctors I don't think will exist anymore. So let uh, let me prove that. This is a video from last year. Keep in mind as you're watching this that every 18 months, the computing ability doubles. So computing ability doubles every 18 months. That's why this is all exponential growth and it's going to slam us in the face really fast. So this is last year. So things are almost twice as good, twice as fast, twice as powerful. This doctor is the head doctor at the Cancer Center of University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So IBM comes in and says, hey, we wanna help you cancer doctors here. And here's our IBM's Watson. Here's our artificial intelligence machine to help you. This is a quick clip from 60 Minutes. Again, this is last year, clip 1590.
3: What Watson's AI technology could do is essentially what Dr. Sharpless and his team of experts do every week at this molecular tumor board meeting. We need to figure this out. They come up with possible treatment options for cancer patients who already failed standard therapies. They try to do that by sorting through all of the latest medical journals and trial data, but it is nearly impossible to keep up. I don't think there's a trial open yet. So to be on top of everything that's out there, all the trials that are taking place around the world, It seems like an incredible task for any one university and one, one facility to do. Yeah, it's, it's essentially undoable, and, and understand we have sort of 8,000
4: new research papers published every day. You know, no one has time to read 8,000 papers a day. So we found that we were deciding on therapy based on information that was always, in some cases, 12, 24 months out of date.
2: All right, we'll pause there. So you with me so far? Are you with us? So cancer research, 8,000 new research papers every day, which seems amazing. Way too much information. No human or group of humans can take all that in and then use it to properly diagnose a patient. It doesn't make any sense. How many research papers could a human take in every day? One? (laughs) One research paper a day? And then let's say you had 8,000 people at the research center, so each person reads each research paper, but then they can't communicate with each other because you got 8,000 people telling each other about the research paper they were in charge of that day. Like It's impossible. It's humanly impossible. Enter Artificial Intelligence Watson. Next clip.
3: However, it is a task that's elementary for Watson.
4: You know, they taught Watson to read medical literature, essentially, in about a week. It was not very hard. And then Watson read 25 million papers in about another week. And uh, then it also scanned the web for clinical trials open at other centers. And all of a sudden, we had this complete list that was sort
2: of everything one needed to know. Did this blow your mind? Oh, it totally blew my mind. There you go, 25 million medical papers in a week. It read 25 million in a week and can diagnose people with cancer better and more thoroughly than the human doctors could ever dream of. So tell me why there will be doctors anymore. Add to this a machine that with a drop of blood, this already exists, with a drop of blood can detect hundreds of diseases instantly. You take that diagnosis, so let's say you put your drop of blood in a machine that everyone will have in their house, drop of blood, says, oh, you have this illness, sends that information to a pharmacist, which is also a machine, not only does the pharmacist know the right medication, but... The pharmacist, the AI computer pharmacist, will know your genetic code. Back in 2001, it cost $100 million to sequence your DNA. Your DNA. To sequence your genome, it cost $100 million in 2001. Today, it's a 1000 bucks. So give it a couple more years, it'll be $100 to uh, sequence your DNA. Everyone will just do it. No problem. Won't even think twice about it. So this machine will analyze your drop of blood, send the information to the machine pharmacist who will not only know the best medicine for your illness, but will also know the best medicine for your illness based on your specific DNA sequencing. And then an Amazon drone will fly the, mach- the, uh, the, the medicine to your door. I mean, <laughs> no humans involved in this entire process. So I remember I talked about that on my local show the other day about f- human pharmacists and how artificial intelligence will take over the pharmacist business. And I got a tweet the next day. Slater, can you give me the source for your IBM Watson pharmacy story? My pharmacist wife is saying it will never happen in a million years. Of course she is. Uh, Now, full disclosure, I totally made that pharmacy story up. When I first shared that a couple of days ago, I totally completely made it up. I was just imagining what artificial intelligence could do. So when this guy sent me uh, an email saying, Hey, Slater, you know, what's the source for that story? I was like, Oh, geez, I wonder if it is a thing. So this is an article from last year, quote, for five years now. (laughs) So now we're on year six, University of uh, UCSF, University of California, San Francisco Medical Center has relied on an automated robot pharmacy to fill prescriptions and a fleet of thousands of autonomous bots to deliver them around the hospital. Rita Jew, director of the UCSF program, says the robots have worked for five years with 100% accuracy. So not only could artificial intelligence replace human pharmacists, they already are. This person says it will never happen in a million years. It happened six years ago. Why? Why, Why AI over humans? It is impossible for a human to understand every drug and every drug's interaction with every other drug and every drug's interaction with your DNA. That's impossible for a human, not for AI. And the truth is humans aren't very good at dispensing medication. Um, I I gotta take a break here. We got more to do, but if you're interested in more, just Google dispensing errors. There's a ton of research on this. They say about 4% of prescription dispensing is wrong and harmful. 4%, 4%, which I think 4%, right, of all the prescriptions that are passed out all every day, I think 4% is pretty good. It's pretty low. But a robot makes zero errors. And also, if you're that one person who has the wrong prescription, that's a big deal. But a robot has zero errors and is probably cheaper and faster and doesn't take time off and doesn't sue their employer. So, of course, pharmacists will be replaced by machines. They already are. And also, of course, everyone thinks their job will be safe from robot replacement, but it probably won't. I feel the need to end on a positive note. I feel like I haven't been Uh, very good. People who are very good at their job will survive longer in AI fields. And people who are in jobs of compassion will still be needed. And that is a major part of some pharmacists jobs. Right? Some pharmacists are just how many pills in this many bottle, boom 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 boom. And that that uh, deals That is very important. But that's why I feel like a lot of these doctor jobs will be replaced by counselors or at least these medical profession jobs will become more and more of the human counseling role. One pharmacist uh this is a professor of pharmacy says the ultimate thing is that automation has led to the ability for us to reinvent ourselves as a profession. And we need to take the challenge. There's going to be a lot of reinventing of professions in the next few years here. I'm talking five years, 10 max. one 888 900 Mike Slater show the blaze radio network. Spread the word. Mike
1: Slater.
0: On the blaze radio network. You're listening to Mike Slater.
2: All right. Now, one more AI <laughs> topic here uh, self driving cars. Remember last week, we were, we, I talked a little bit about self driving cars, and then someone on my local show called in and said, Slater, you're out of your mind. Uh, self driving cars are not going to happen. They're not going to be widespread. No chance. And I, I, told, I think I told you, I think we talked about this last week, actually. I went home and a couple hours after that conversation, and saw that Elon Musk and unveiled the new thirty-five thousand dollar Tesla. So once this officially goes on sale, and, and now there's a huge back order now. But once this goes on sale and is no longer back order, this thing will be all over the place. And I, I, again, I think I shared this too that the uh, guy at Motor Trend, so the guy who tests cars at Motor Trend said he rode in an Alfa Romeo to the track to test the Tesla. And he said the Alfa Romeo felt like a, west, a wet sponge by comparison. Right, so these are car guys who are saying, oh my gosh, this Tesla thing is out of control. Unbelievable. $35,000. And the price is only going to go down and down and down. And the best thing is, even if you don't like Teslas, Elon Musk has open sourced everything Every single technology in a Tesla is open source, which means it's available to everyone. So Ford, whoever, can take the exact same technology that Tesla is using and make their cars with it. Total game changer. So yesterday, I saw a new Mercedes. Actually, I think it's on the front of Drudge. I think if you go to Drudge, the the front page has the new Mercedes. and, And Mercedes is making a point here that this is not a concept car. You see these concept cars, right? They have these car shows and they'll bring out these concept cars and they're ridiculous. They're totally out of control. They have no... No way will they ever be actual cars that people buy or make or where they just look ridiculous. I don't even know why they do it to be honest. But Mercedes is saying, Oh no no no, this is not a this is not a concept car. This is a car that we are going to be making here very soon and the inside of it looks like a living room. And the car the seats all turn to the middle and there's a table there and just completely self driving. So imagine what the world looks like and what our life looks like. No more driving where you just are driven places. Everything changes. Now I want to give a little, a little context to this and talk about how these changes aren't new. They're just different. So in 1901, the first speed limit law was passed for cars. Was In Connecticut, the first speed limit law, I should say that cars were not called cars for a long time. They weren't even called automobiles. The cars were originally called horseless carriages, which again says a lot about that period of change, right? They were called carriages, which obviously were propelled by horses or pulled by horses. Uh, Well, here's a carriage without a horse. It's a horseless carriage. So the speed limit for the horseless carriage was 12 miles per hour. There was a law that was proposed in Pennsylvania that required anyone in a horseless carriage to have someone walk in front of it with a flare. Which kind of defeats the purpose of the horseless carriage. Uh, The law also said that if a horse is coming in the other, other direction, you have to pull over, dismantle your car, whatever that means, and then put a sheet over it. That blends in with the background so as to not scare the horses now i guarantee you people when the first horseless carriages were coming out uh there was some guy like me saying oh this will completely revolutionize everything and everyone's going to be driving in these horses carriages and a vast majority of people with horses said no way won't happen impossible too loud too dangerous too expensive we don't have the infrastructure for it and also people really love their horses and here we are i mean Look around. Same thing's going to happen with these cars. Uh, The number one excuse I have or or, or reason that people give that this won't happen is because people like their freedom. People really love their freedom. They love the freedom of the open road. They love to be able to get in their car and go wherever you want. So no one's going to get in a a self-driving car because then they'll lose their freedom. The government will be able to track it. They'll be able to maybe even control the cars and tell you where to go and where you can't go and all the rest so no one's going to buy these self-driving cars because p- people don't want to give up their freedom. Nah. You may not want to give up your freedom, but people don't care. Did you hear the story like two weeks ago of the company in Wisconsin? St. Louis? I forget where it was. But a company where people voluntarily microchipped themselves. They, they voluntarily injected a, a rice-sized microchip in their hand to make it easier for them to buy a Twix at the snack bar because they can just put their hand up where the credit card goes you put their hand and then you, and that's connected to your debit card. This little voluntarily. They thought it was great. Like, Oh, it's wonderful. I got a chip inside my hand. Look at that. Isn't that awesome? People love it. I think your cell phone, our cell phone, everyone's cell phone takes away a lot of our freedom. Not only takes away our freedom of the moment because things are always distracting us all the time, but you're totally tracked all the time. There's even a way, and I forget how to do it, but there's a way to go to your Google account and it'll tell you, it'll show a map of all the places you've been. So Google knows exactly where where you go all the time. So we've already given up that freedom. We've given up those freedoms a long time ago and no one really seems to care. So I see no reason why anyone would really be that deterred, deterred from getting in a self-driving car, especially when they see the convenience of it. And the convenience is you're exhausted punch a couple buttons, close your eyes. Alarm goes off in 45 minutes when you're getting to your work and you start to wake up and get out of your car and done. There you are. Also commutes right now. I think an hour long commute is crazy but you could live two or three hours away in a self-driving car and and then work on the way as the car drives you to where you're going. And you just have your mini cubicle on wheels or you can sleep or whatever. Like I, why would people not do it? Of course people will do that. That is five, again, five years, 10 max away. Five years. There's no way my nine month old son will know how to drive. There's no way ever, no, not a chance he'll have a driver's license. Uh, and I don't even think he'll own cars. I think by that point, they'll just sort of be communal cars. Like Uber will own all the cars and you just sort of call it and it will come. So these are drastic changes that are happening and they're going to happen very soon. one 933 93 And honestly, if you spread the word about this to your friends, you'll be the first person in your group of friends that is aware and either sounding the alarm or ringing the celebration bells i guess that totally depends on you coming up next i want to talk about my new favorite type of privilege it's not even white privilege it's worse
1: this is mike slater part of the next generation of talk radio on
0: the blaze radio network
2: Rita said, I love what you said about preparing our kids to deal with the world as it is. Think kids today can be helped. Absolutely. Um, here's what I said that the line, it's not my line. It's, um, are you preparing the kid for the way or are you preparing the way for the kid? So think of like, make it literal. So a path, if you're preparing the way for the kid, then you are going in front of your kid and you're, um, you know, filling in this hole and clearing away this tree, and here's a bump, and we're gonna level that off, and here's a little uh, water. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna build a little boat for my kids so they can get across the water. So, th- like, you're preparing the way to make it easy for your kid to just do, 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 walk, or are you gonna prepare your child for the way? Meaning, I'm gonna give my kid the skill sets to build a boat. I'm gonna give my kid the, the skill sets to know how to climb. The, the bump in the road, climb the mountain. Uh, I'm going to teach him how to clear the tree. Right, right. See the total, total, total difference there. So I think we're off on on that. Sarita, I hope that uh, hope that helps. Uh, I found my new favorite type of privilege. This beats even white privilege, which is a total pile and we don't have time to go into that. Actually, on my Twitter, Slater Radio on Twitter, I put a link there to, it's up there, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I put a link up there to Black Rednecks and White Liberals by Thomas Sowell, which is a fantastic book. You have to read it, You have to read it. Must read it. Uh, put a link there on Twitter, Slater Radio on Twitter. Please buy it. And in there, it will, it was written a while back, but it will destroy the whole Black Lives Matter white privilege argument <laughs> in a couple pages. It's fantastic. But now we have a whole new level here the problem with the white privilege narrative among other things is that I think it gives people an excuse to not do the right thing and to not act the right way and to not achieve and to not strive and to not build character because we tell kids that no matter how they behave or what they do, the system is working against them. They can't succeed. You can't be successful no matter what you do. Thomas Sowell tells a story of how he was at Marquette. And a black student stood up and said he wanted to join the military, but he couldn't because he was black. This was like three years ago. And he said, what are you talking about? He's like, oh, yeah, the the, the system's out against black people. And he said, have you ever heard of the Tuskegee Airmen? What, you, what, what is your... Of course black people can... But this is what our kids are told. That no matter what you do, you can't succeed. So now we have a new privilege that's even worse than that. Cognitive privilege. Oh, maybe the first time you've ever heard that. This is exciting because you're going to hear a lot more of it. This is an op ed in the student newspaper at the University of Iowa. Usually I would not get anything from a student newspaper, but uh, all these things start in the universities. Here's what this person said There are many kinds of privilege besides white privilege, cognitive privilege, for example. We now know that intelligence is not, intelligence is not something we have significant control over, but it's something we are born with. My right, gosh, it goes back to the whole, remember, I don't want to get into a whole gay rights thing here, but remember, they, they the whole movement is telling, intentionally telling people we're born this way. We're born this way, born this way, born this way, born this way. We have no choice. There's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing. You can do about it. We're born this way, born this way, born this way, even though that's not necessarily slash always true. So same thing here. Are you smart. Are you smart? Are you dumb? You're born that way. We are living in a society in which success is increasingly linked to one's intelligence. This is great stuff here. So they're saying intelligence is not something you have significant control over. You're born with it. More excuses, more excuses. You're born dumb. Do you see the message this sends to kids in particular to kids, but to everyone, but let's focus on kids. It sends the message. There's no use trying. You're either born smart or you're born dumb. So what's the point of studying? What's the point of trying? What's the point of reading? What's the point of working hard to achieve? You're either born smart or you're not. Nothing I can do to fix it. Now also, if you're born smart, well, then you benefit from that. You benefit from being born that way. well. It's nothing you did. But gosh, you have all the benefits now because you were born with this privilege. This is no different than you didn't build that. Remember when Barack Obama said you didn't build that? And every small business owner across the country said, oh, yes, I did. <laughs> Who else did? It, it, this is the same thing. You're not smart. It's not you. Oh, you think it's you? You think you're smart? No, No, it's not you. You were born that way. There's nothing you did to be smart. This is an actual line from the editorial quote. You have nothing to be proud of for being smart. You have nothing to be proud of for being smart. So uh, if you are smart, that means you're successful, which means you probably have some money, which means the government's going to come in and take it from you because, I mean, that's just the fair thing to do. You didn't actually succeed. You were just born this way. And we're going to give it to these other people over here who have no hope because they were born dumb. Now let me ask you a question. If this is how our society is going to think and people who are dumb get free stuff. Do you think that will incentivize people not striving, not trying to excel? Of course it will because society is going to say, well, here's all this stuff and there's nothing you can do about it anyway. There's nothing you can do to actually be successful or make money. Because you're born that way. You're born dumb. You don't have cognitive privilege. You're cognitively disadvantaged. See how sick that is? See how sick and twisted? And now we know more and more research and just common sense that the greatest indicator to your success is not intelligence. So this person says, what was the line? Um, We are living in a society in which success is increasingly linked to one's intelligence. No, it's your grit. I know super smart people who have no grit. They don't know hard work at all. They don't get it. And they're not successful. Now, I know people who aren't necessarily that smart, but they work their butt off and they never give up. And they're way more successful than the person who may have been born with more skill sets or more cognitive privilege. It's not entirely about intelligence. I wouldn't even say it's mostly about intelligence. There's a ton of other variables. I firmly, deeply believe this. I think the people who you see that are successful are not the ones who are the best at their field. I think they're the ones who never quit. I give, uh, think of an example. Um, I could give a sports example. All right, I'll go. I'll give a sports one. I'll give a few here. We'll start with sports. Um, best, ba- best basketball player ever. Who's the best basketball player ever? Now, we're not going to turn into... Listen, if you ever hear a sports radio debate, who's the best, LeBron or Jordan? They, they have nothing else to talk about. And they're just trying to fill time. So I don't want to get into that debate here, but let's just go with Michael Jordan. Okay, Let's say uh, Michael Jordan quit in high school when he didn't make his high school team then who would be the best basketball player ever? Okay. Then it'd be LeBron. Everyone say LeBron. But now we're going with, so, so, so why, but why is it Jordan? He just quit. Now let's say it's because he didn't quit. Let's say he did quit. We would never know. We would never know that LeBron really wasn't the best. It was this other guy, Michael Jordan, but no one would have ever heard of Michael Jordan. So we would say that LeBron is the best, but he's not really the best. He's just the best who didn't quit. There was another guy who was better, Michael Jordan, but he quit. Let me give you another example. Maybe this one will be more clear. So, uh, let's say 10 people sit down to write a book. Like I did recently. I may be the sixth best writer of the 10. I'm definitely not the best. I don't think I'm the worst. Somewhere in the middle of the pack. Let's say I'm the sixth best writer of the 10 people. So there's five writers who are better than me. Of those five writers who are objectively better writers than me, one of them never got started. The other got discouraged. The third is a huge jerk, so no one would edit the book for him. The fourth is really greedy and demanded too much from the publisher, so no one would publish it. And the fifth was too scared to finally finish it and send it out. I was all of those things. I never got started. I got discouraged. I didn't want anyone to edit it for me. I demanded too much from a publisher and I was too scared to send it out. But in the end, I overcame all of those and I got it published. It's out. Now I'm not the best writer of those 10. I'm the sixth best writer, but I had the, if you will, grit, grit, and didn't let those things stop me. So I published it. So now of the 10, well, I'm the one who got published. Well, the the, the 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 three people who are not as good writers, they also got theirs published. But of the 10 who did get published, I'm the best. But am I really the best? No, I was the sixth best. There were five better than me. Five of them were better than me. They just never got it done. So if you just look at the end result, I win. Does that mean I have cognitive privilege? Well, no, there's five other people there who are smarter than me. There's five other people there who are better writers than me. It was all the other attributes that got me to the finish line. More than just writing ability. Perseverance, determination, building relationships, taking a risk, not being greedy. All all these other things that that can be combined in one word, grit, but not about intelligence and not about writing ability. It's those things that really matter. Does that make sense? Intelligence is a variable to success, but it's not the variable, not by a long shot. So this whole cognitive privilege poison that will now be peddled out by the left is the most poisonous of the poisons yet because it doesn't even have to do with race. So this, that means everyone is going to be included in this and anyone who's looking for an excuse to not succeed and not strive and not thrive and not do their best. Well, they got a good one right here. Oh, I was born dumb. And that guy who I'm jealous of who did succeed. Well, he was born smart and life just isn't fair. You see how that doesn't end well. That's what's next.
0: This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater.
2: Angela Duckworth wrote a book a couple years ago called Grit. I'll put a link to that also on Slater Radio. Uh, It's great. And she did an interview with the New York Times about it. And with grit, she defines grit as a combination of passion and perseverance. Think about that. It's a combination of passion and perseverance. She said, my lab has found that this measure, grit, beats the pants off IQ, SAT scores, physical fitness, and a bazillion other measures To help us know in advance which individuals will be successful in different situations. I completely agree with that. I feel like the biggest indicator to success is not your intelligence. It's your grit. There's so many more variables. And it's just the other than intelligence. Intelligence. I mean, what's, what's the worst thing you can say about someone? I think the worst thing that you could ever say, or I should say the worst thing that someone could say about me is he had so much potential. What does that mean? When someone says, oh gosh, he had so much potential, it means they were smart, but they didn't have the other characteristics they needed to reach their potential. They didn't have grit. So for this person to say that cognitive privilege and to, to the the whole basis is off of, That intelligence is all it takes. You have the smart and you have the dumb. No one can help, but there's nothing you can do to fix it. I mean, gosh, these progressives say there's nothing you can do to change your gender identity. (laughs) Of course, they're going to say there's nothing you can do to change your intelligence, which means if you're dumb, you're dumb. Think of the message that sends. Think of the poison that is. The system is against you. The system decides what you can achieve. The system is unjust. And now we have this on top of it, that you were born dumb. Gosh, progressives in academia, the ones who are starting this stuff, they are such fatalists. Everything's up to fate, and you are completely powerless. But then you throw on top of that atheism, so there's no God, and then a worldview of nihilism. I know I'm throwing out a lot of isms here, but you, you have fatalism, it's all fate, atheism, there's no God, nihilism, which means it's all meaningless that's a pretty toxic stew (laughs) fatalism atheism nihilism throw those things together and you get everything's awful the system's against you there's nothing you can do about it and let's rip everyone down who is successful that's that's the end result of that this victimhood progressive ideology such an unbelievable lie one 888 uh, I want to come back here and play this clip from Adam Carolla, who was testifying in front of Congress the other day, which is awesome. And he had such a great opening couple minutes. I want to play a few minutes of it, which actually kind of ties into all this stuff. But it was actually, it was Adam Carolla and Ben Shapiro. And they were talking about freedom of speech on college campuses. And it's more than that, though. We'll do that coming up next. Uh, Check us out on Facebook. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Please like us and and hang out there. We do a Facebook Live every day or so. And uh, a great way for us to to stay in touch there. I'd appreciate that. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. We got Adam Krola coming up next. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
0: You're listening to Mike Slater.
1: Part of the next generation of talk radio.
0: On the Blaze Radio Network.
1: Slater in three, two, one You are listening to Mike Slater part of the next generation of talk radio only on the Blaze radio network.
2: You say America's the greatest country in the world. I can't believe it's the third hour already. Uh, super glad you're here. please like us on Facebook you can search for the Mike Slater show on Facebook um, and like us there we can hang out all week. We just started doing Facebook lives We tried to do one every day. Uh, and everyone we've done has been like long, like like forty five minutes or so. So we get to hang out for a long time, which is cool. Uh, Sue, so if you want to be a part of that, please join us over there. And oh, we had a new announcement just a couple days ago that uh, we made on Facebook, so you can find that there as well. Uh, so I enjoy these two people very much. You got comedian Adam Carolla and Ben Shapiro, conservative guy. And these two testified in front of Congress about freedom of speech on college campuses, and they both did an excellent job. I want to start with Adam Carolla's opening remarks. I I really believe this is as as good as it gets here. Here it is.
3: We're talking a lot about the kids, and I think they're just that, kids. We are the adults, and I don't think... We are doing the children. I mean, these are 18 and 19 year old kids that are at these college campuses. They grew up dipped in Purell playing soccer games where they never kept score and watching Wawa Wubzy. And we're asking them to be mature. We need the adults to start being the adults. Um, Studies have shown that if you take People and you put them in a zero-gravity environment like astronauts, they lose muscle mass, they lose bone density. We're taking these kids in the name of protection, we're putting them in a zero-gravity environment and they're losing muscle mass and bone density. They need to live in a world that has gravity. When you, you need to expose your children to germs and dirt and the environment to build up their immune system. Our plan is put them in a bubble, keep them away from everything, and somehow they'll come out stronger when they emerge from the bubble. Well, that's not happening. Children are the future, but we are the present, and we're the adults, and we need to act like it. And I feel that... um...
2: Mm, I love that. so good. 100% true, too. And everyone knows it is, but we don't live like this. And our college campuses certainly have not become this. Do we even need to give examples of that? Do we need to give examples? I mean, I don't think we do. You get it. How weak our kids are, how, how we treat them with kids, cl- kid gloves. No one can get offended. We can't have a soda stream in the Harvard dining hall because they're made by an Israeli company and that offends Muslims. A soda stream offends like it's completely insane. The Yale Halloween costume outrage. One college group wanted to have a taco Tuesday, but that was offensive to Mexicans. Another group wanted to bring a camel in for one of their events. And that was uh, offensive to Arabs or something. It's just, it makes, it makes like, they're so weak. Dipped in purel, I love that. Now listen, I have a nine month old. I know nothing. I just want to be very clear. I know nothing. And I'm very aware of how little I know and how much I still have to learn. But the only example that I've gathered so far in my nine months of dadding is Jack rolling over. So I'll be on the couch, and or we're playing on the ground, and he'll be in a position on his back, maybe, and he wants to roll over on his stomach, but he can't because you know his arms above his head, and my legs in the way, and the blankets in the way, so he can't just roll over like he normally could. I don't help him. I don't help him. I let him figure it out. Now, before you think I'm cruel, he's safe. No one's in danger here. But if he wants to roll over, what he'll do is, he, he first he does it the the normal way, as if he were just laying on his back on the ground. Just kicks his leg over, boom, he's over. Uh, he's like, oh, darn it, that doesn't work. Okay. Uh, and then you can see him. He thinks, okay. So then he tries kicking his leg a little, little hard, and it doesn't work. So he moves his shoulder in. That doesn't work. So then he rotates his hips, and he tucks his head in, and instead of throwing his shoulder he does it. Try and then he, boom, boom, does it. Beautiful, huge, giant smile. He loves it. And we cheer him on and we celebrate and we clap and it's great fun. You did it, Jack. Yay, you didn't give up. It's nine months, right? We got to take what we can do with it. So that's my metaphor for effort and grit. But there's something to it, right? I, I, even at this age, there's something to it. He can't just lay on his back and cry and we're going to come over and flip him over every time. Do it yourself, kid. I'll always be here for you, but you got to do it yourself too. That's the Slater family philosophy at least. And that's our philosophy because we love our son. It's not because we hate him. It's because we love him. We will not raise him in a zero gravity environment. I heard a story one time of a kid who was of walking age. How old are you when you're supposed to walk? Like one or so? So this kid was two. Well past it and couldn't walk. And his parents brought him to the doctor because they wanted to know why, why their, their two year old couldn't walk. And one of the first questions out of the doctor's mouth was, does he have any older siblings? And mom said, yes, he has two older brothers. And the doctor goes, well, do, do your older, do his older brothers ever pick your son up? Oh yes. They pick him up all the time. They carry him everywhere. The kid doesn't walk because he doesn't need to walk. His brothers carried him everywhere. (laughs) He would just point like a king and be carried to it, to, (laughs) to the other side of the room or have things brought to him all the time. He doesn't walk because he never learned, he didn't need to walk. He starts young. And this absolutely is what we're doing to our kids today when they're 22. And as Corolla said, we need the adults to step up and be adults. The kids are the future, but the adults are the present. Got one more clip of Corolla here. Let's play this one. This is uh, 1601, sir.
3: What's going on on these campuses is we need law and order. We need to bring back law and order, but I think if we just had order, we wouldn't need law. So, could we just bring back order and could the faculty and administration on these campuses act like faculty and administration? And most importantly, adults who are in charge of these kids who need some gravity in their life. Thank you.
2: Hmm. Well said. If we had order, we wouldn't need law. It's great. Um, I mean, our founding father spoke. Similarly with that, right? That this government can only be possible with a virtuous people. That's that's basically it. Uh, Really, if our kids had personal responsibility, if they had an internal driving value system, if kids had curiosity and wanted to learn and wanted to be challenged, as opposed to always wanting to be affirmed, then we wouldn't need law. We wouldn't need extra free speech laws on college campuses. The fact that we're even having this conversation means that we have a generation of kids who have entirely missed the point, and a generation of adults who don't care. I'll end on this quote here. This is a Ivy League professor. Kids who manage to get into elite colleges have, by definition, never experienced anything but success. The prospect of not being successful terrifies them, disorients them. The cost of falling short, even temporarily, becomes not merely practical but existential. Their entire existence. Is determined uh, on this one moment of potential failure. The result is a violent aversion to risk. You have no margin for error, so you avoid the possibility that you will ever make an error. I lead professor, kids don't know how to fail. They've lived zero-gravity lives. They've never scratched their knees. They're afraid of a little blood, and from that, you get chaos. You don't get order from that. You get more chaos. Isn't that interesting. Wouldn't you think of uh, of generations of preparing the way instead of preparing the kid? Wouldn't you think you'd get more order? You don't. You get total freak out, anxiety, depression, chaos, violence. That's what we have right now. One more education story I want to share next. Mike Slater Show on the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
1: Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the blaze radio network.
2: Slater Crusaders. Thanks for being here. Um, I found the entrance examination for university of Illinois in 1922. And I I just want to share this as an example of how far we've fallen. I think it was the first hour of the show. We talked about how the Cal state system in California, we have three levels of higher education. You have community college, then above that Cal State and above that University of California. So Cal State, 40% of incoming freshmen in Cal State have to take remedial classes because they don't know how to read and write and do math. So to solve that problem, because there were so many kids who needed it, they just got rid of them. No, not the kids. I'm sorry. They just got rid of the remedial classes. No more remedial classes. So now everyone is doesn't know how to read and write. <laughs> no one knows how to read and write and do math now. So, like we, so we talked earlier about where. What's the good of that? Like where, where, now, what? What's the what good could possibly come from getting rid of remedial classes in the Cal State system? I don't want to go back into that, but this is a good example of how far we've fallen. I'm reading this awesome Thomas Jefferson biography. I'll put this on uh, Twitter as well. This book I'm reading about Thomas Jefferson's great, and in it, the uh, biographer says that when he went to William and Mary, when Thomas Jefferson went to William mm-hmm. and Mary the admission standards were very relaxed. You only needed to know how to speak Latin and Greek. That was it. That was the only real standard they had of getting it. You just needed to know how to speak Latin and Greek, which I mean, we all know how to, we don't. I don't. So this is the English entrance examination for university of Illinois, 1922. First of all, it's interesting that they had an entrance examination to get into college there's no tests to get into college anymore right if you want to go to a college you don't take a test to get into that college you apply and you write all these blowhardy essays about how much volunteering you've done last year but there's no exam So i think that alone says a lot about college but anyway this is the written exam uh five questions first question describe the conditions causing achilles to stop fighting Describe the conditions to causing Achilles to stop fighting. Number one. uh, Number two. What was Franklin's plan for the union of the colonies? Discuss his arguments in favor of it. Number three. What characteristics in a Midsummer's Night Dream are more than mere types? Defend your answer. Number four. Summarize the chief ideas you gained from reading one of Thackeray's essays in The English Humorist that's an easy one right <laughs> could all can all answer that at number five uh, point out four distinctly poesque characteristics marking the Raven poesque meaning Edgar Allan Poe poesque characteristics in the Raven there's five questions there um, so those questions mean that anyone going to college it is assumed that that person has not only a passing familiarity but a Deep understanding of, well, in these questions, the Iliad, Ben Franklin's writings, Shakespeare, Edgar Allan Poe, and William Thackeray. <laughs> like You know, even if they have an English exam today, which they barely do anymore, they'll give you a paragraph. And you read the paragraph and then you write about the paragraph. It's like, pfft, whatever. This was, oh, you just have to know about the Iliad. Right, so describe the conditions causing Achilles to stop fighting. Oh, you just know that off the top of your head because, of course, you read it. <laughs> of course, everyone's read the Iliad, and I. Oh, yeah, okay, I can tell you all about. That was in 1922. We're not even close to that. Thackeray, by the way, he wrote. Uh, he wrote a book called Vanity Fair. So one of the most read books ever is called The Pilgrim's Progress. It was written in 1670-something. And along the route of The Pilgrim, is, he comes across a town called Vanity, which is where everyone is engrossed in worldly things, vain things. So this guy, Thackeray, a couple hundred years later, wrote a book called Vanity Fair, and he wrote it as a critique of British people. I have no idea why the magazine would then call itself Vanity Fair. That's not a good thing. It's about unnecessary and worldly things. But anyway, it doesn't matter. So that's how far we've fallen. Meanwhile, we got a new report from USA Today about the average grade of a senior graduating high school. The average grade uh, is an A, which includes an A plus and an A minus. So in 1998, of seniors had an A average today, 47%. So half of graduating seniors are a students, even though SAT scores are falling. And even though I don't think there's a single high schooler who could answer one of those five questions of the 1922 university of Illinois entrance exam. (laughs) Right. Is there, is there, seriously, do you know a high schooler? I bet the high school down the street from you or the one your kid goes to, I bet you can't, if you just pulled one high schooler out, I don't mean insulting, right? I bet if you just pulled one high schooler out, just because that's what this was. This was just, yoink, here here you are. And you gave them these five questions. I bet not one of them could answer that in a way that would let them gain admission into the University of Illinois. I bet you could find, I bet you could look at, you could take any English major at the University of Illinois today and ask them those five questions and they couldn't answer one of them properly. That's where we are today. What the heck is wrong with us? We are failing our kids. It's a mixture of a completely failed education system, which we talk about all the time. But also I think it's intentional from some who want people to be ignorant. I want to quote here, Professor Alan Bloom, in his great book, The Closing of the American Mind, he wrote this in 1987. He said, lack of education simply results in students seeking for enlightenment wherever it is readily available, without being able to distinguish between the sublime and trash, insight and propaganda. Lack of education results in students seeking for enlightenment wherever it's readily available without being able to distinguish between the sublime and trash, insight and propaganda. Gosh, it reminds me of the Dennis Prager clip we played earlier. He was giving a debate at Oxford and and one of the professors stands up and asks a question which was supposed to be some sort of zinger and everyone in the audience applauded. And he goes, oh, I'm not quite sure I see the profundity of your question. I'm I'm not quite sure I see how insightful your question was. But everyone in the audience, they, they, they weren't smart enough to be able to distinguish between insight and propaganda. The question was just propaganda. They thought it was insightful. They couldn't distinguish. They don't know. Dumb people are sheep. Dumb people are sheep. And there are certain people who want power who understand that very well. So I think a lot of it is good intentions. I think a lot of it is selfishness from unions. I think a lot of it is power grab from politicians. Fame grabbing. And I think a lot of it, or some of it, and you can decide what's more influential of all this. But some of this is people who truly want to keep others ignorant because those are easily led. one I want to come back one more clip from this uh, back and forth, excuse me, from this testimony with comedian Adam Carolla and uh, conservative Ben Shapiro. I want to come back with the Ben Shapiro part who, in his Ben Shapiro way, lays out the three-step plan of how this works and how this is all crumbling right before our eyes. And remember, all of this stuff starts in the universities and then trickles down everywhere else. My my best example of things trickling down is 10 years ago. I've told the story a million times. 10 years ago, my college roommate said, oh my gosh, Slater, you're not going to believe in class. They taught about gender fluidness and there's more than two genders and blah, blah, blah. That was 10 years ago. And today, this is being taught to kindergartners. 10 years this stuff that's going on in college campuses right now this will become norm unless we are aware of it like you are and like unless we try to stop it which we all are we'll play this ben shapiro clip next one 933 93 slater radio on twitter i'm going to put up uh, the two books that i just mentioned we'll put that on twitter right now and join us on facebook search for the mike slater show on facebook and uh, we got some facebook lives that we do every day don't get to hang out there as well. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook, Slater Radio on Twitter, Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
1: This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. On
0: The Blaze Radio Network.
1: the next generation of talk radio this is Mike Slater
2: Uh, this is Ben Shapiro testifying in front of Congress the other day and uh, he outlines it very clearly here's how it works
5: free speech is under assault because of a three-step argument made by the advocates and justifiers of violence the first step is they say that the validity or invalidity of an argument can be judged solely by the ethnic sexual racial or cultural identity of the person making the argument The second step is that they claim those who say otherwise are engaging in what they call verbal violence. And the final step is they conclude that physical violence is sometimes justified in order to stop such verbal violence. So let's examine each of these three steps in turn. First, the philosophy of intersectionality. This philosophy now dominates college campuses, as well as a large segment, unfortunately, of today's Democratic Party, and suggests that straight white Americans are inherently the beneficiaries of white privilege, and therefore cannot speak on certain policies, since they have not experienced what it's like to be black or Hispanic or gay or transgender or a woman. This philosophy ranks the value of a view not based on the logic or merit of the view, but on the level of victimization in American society experienced by the person espousing the view. Therefore, if you're an LGBT black woman, your view of American society is automatically more valuable than that of a straight white male. The next step in the logic is obvious. If a straight white male, or anybody else who ranks lower on the victimhood scale, says something contrary to the viewpoint of the higher ranking intersectionality identity, that person has engaged in a microaggression. As NYU social psychologist Jonathan Haidt writes, microaggressions are small actions or word choices that seem on their face to have no malicious intent, but that are thought of as a kind of violence nonetheless. You don't have to actively say anything insulting to microaggress. Somebody merely needs to take offense. If, for example, you say that society ought to be colorblind, you're microaggressing certain identity groups who have been victimized by a non-colorblind society. Note, microaggressions, as the name suggests, are not merely insults, they are aggressions. They are the equivalent to physical violence. Just two weeks ago, psychologist Lisa Feldman Barrett of Northeastern University published an essay in the New York Times suggesting that words should be seen as physical violence because they can cause stress and stress causes physical harm. Thus, Feldman suggested it is reasonable, scientifically speaking, to ban or restrict speech you do not like at your school. This is both inane and dangerous. That's because it leads to the final logical step. Words you don't like deserve to be fought physically. When I spoke at California State University LA, One professor threatened students who sponsored me by offering to fight them. He then posted a slogan on the door of his office, stating, the best response to microaggression is macroaggression. As Hyatt writes, this is why the idea that speech is violence is so dangerous. It tells the members of a generation already beset by anxiety and depression that the world is a far more violent and threatening place than it really is. It tells them that words, ideas, speakers can literally kill them. Even worse, at a time of rapidly rising political polarization in the United States, Uh,
2: So, see how that works? Do you see how that works? You can't say something because you're, let's go with white. And if you do say it, that's step one. You can't say it because you're white. If you do say it, you're committing verbal violence. That's step two. Step three is I can combat your verbal violence with real actual violence. That professor that he was talking about in the New York Times, uh, I found that, article that he was referencing and she says that verbal violence can make you sick it can alter your brain kill neurons and shorten your life let me quote she says your body's immune system includes little proteins called pro-inflammatory cytokines that cause inflammation when you're physically injured under certain conditions, however, these cytokines themselves can cause physical illness. What are those conditions? One of them is chronic stress. All right, so she goes on and she talks more about the uh, the science behind that. She goes, student advocates have vigorously protested, even violently, against invited speakers whose views they consider not just offensive but harmful. This idea that there's often no difference between speech and violence has struck many as coddling or infantilizing of students, which is what I believe, as does Ben Shapiro. But she says, no, that's not true. She says "A, a culture of constant casual brutality is toxic to the body, and we suffer for it. That's why it's reasonable, scientifically speaking, not to allow a provocateur and hate monger like Milo Yiannopoulos to speak at your school. He is part of something noxious, a campaign of abuse. There's nothing to be gained from debating him for debate is not what he is offering. Gosh, that is so twisted. That is the height of arrogance because of course she feels that it's her job to decide who is worthy of being debated and who is not worthy of being. She decides what is healthy debate and what is unhealthy, who to listen to and who not to listen to. She decides who is stressful. To listen to too stressful, too stressful to the point where it causes you physical harm to listen to and who it's okay to listen to. And gosh, I hope you don't fall on the unhealthy side of her determination. She says, by all means, we should have open conversations and vigorous debate about controversial or offensive topics, but we must also halt speech that bullies and torments from the perspective of our brain cells, that is literally a form of violence. Okay, here's the uh, here's my response to this professor. Two points. First, personal responsibility. Second, perspective. We'll go with perspective first. Um, chronic stressful situations. That's what she's talking about, right? She says, if you're a student on a college campus and you have Milo Yiannopoulos come uh, or Ben Shapiro come to campus, then uh, or Adam Crowley, he tells a story of how he got shut down from campus one time. So you' have, you've have had Corolla come to campus and and that's a chronic, stressful situation. You need a little perspective if you think that's the case. chronic A chronic stressful situation would be a child who lives in an abusive home. That's a chronically stressful situation. That's dangerous. That can lead to major emotional problems for a child that can last forever. A student at Harvard is in no such situation. If there's a spectrum of stressful situations and you are a student at a major university in 2017 America, you're fine. On that spectrum, let's go 0 to 100. Let's say 100 is very stressful. We'll go with child in an abusive home. That's 100. Very, very stressful. Constant stress, constant awareness, constant alertness, neglect, all the rest. That's 100. If you're a a student at a major university in 2017 America, if the kid's 100, you are a 6. Because you got a big test coming up, and I understand you got to study for it, and that can be kind of stressful. But in the grand scheme of things, you're hovering around a 6 on a scale of 1 to 100. You are at that moment, the most stressful moment of your college career, the very most stressful, you are still in the top 1% of most pleasant experiences ever had by a human being. You're, 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 you are as comfortable and safe and, and sh- should be stress-free with proper perspective of, as really anyone ever. And it's up to society and professors and adults to help kids have that proper perspective and goodness that I'm talking. If you're in the height of exam time, you're like a six on the grand scale of human existence from zero to a hundred. If you are on a Friday night going to one of the speaking venues and listening to Adam Carolla, your, your stress level is a zero. Okay. You're fine. That's the perspective. Personal responsibility. If you can't handle a speaker on campus, that's not the fault of the speaker. It's your fault. Take some responsibility over how you receive things. Take some responsibility for how you interpret things. I think we played a video a couple of weeks ago of John Cleese from Monty Python. And he said that people who can't control how they feel try to control how other people behave. And this is true for everyone, I'm not talking about just college kids. People who can't control how they feel try to control how other people behave. And that's what all this is. These are a bunch of adults and students who can't control how they feel. They have no personal responsibility for how they receive information and interpret things. So instead, they seek to control other people's behavior. That's what this is all about. Don't let them do it. Because they're never going to be satisfied. They're always going to be hysterical. 1-888-900-3393. one 888 3393 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word.
0: You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network.
1: Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater
2: Crusaders, thanks for being here. Uh, I just put a bunch of books on our Twitter page. Uh, so you can check all those out, Slater Radio. And uh, buy those, they're excellent. And remember, every time you feel the urge to watch cable news, read a book, I promise you, you will be so much happier. You're just, you'll just you feel better. It's just, its like getting off a drug. You, you got to stop with the cable news. <laughs> I'm telling you. Just stop. It's so bad. It's just a soap opera. It's a foolish soap opera. So here's how I visualize it. I think cable news is this giant multi-billion dollar infrastructure that has been set up to fill a box of outrage. So there's this box of outrage that has to be full at all times. And they've determined that there's a certain number of, a certain amount of outrage right? That, that they need at all times in order to keep people watching. And that's the size of the box. If it's too much, then people maybe won't watch because it's too much outrage. And if it's not enough, then it's boring. Right? So it's got to be just the right amount of outrage. They have this box and it's yay big and it's always full no matter what. There could be nothing going on. There could be literally nothing happening. But it's got to fill the box. Or there could be some things happening that that do fill it right? But but the point is, at all times, it's got to fill the box. Even if they have to make stuff up, even if there's nothing really there, it just has to be constant outrage. And it's exhausting. It's just not real. Read. You'll be so much happier. I want to end here. The Yale professor... The article is don't send your kids to the Ivy league. The nation's top colleges are turning our kids into zombies. (laughs) Uh, Our system of elite. uh, There's a quote here that I'm building to that's unbelievable. Our system of elite education manufactures young people who are smart and talented and driven. Yes, but also anxious, timid and lost with little intellectual curiosity and a stunted sense of purpose trapped in a bubble of privilege heading meekly in the same direction. Great at what they're doing, but with no idea why they're doing it. Gosh, it's so good. Great at what they're doing. No idea why they're doing it. So we have two main forces happening here. We have the culture that was shared the last few weeks. Uh, you have the underclass Theodore pulled This book, life at the bottom. It's fantastic. Talks about people living in ghettos, kids with no drive no determination no future no understanding of a future no concept of a future kids who you say you know you gotta gotta get an education so you can get a good job go to work and they say work i've they literally don't know anyone in their life who has ever gone to a job ever they've never seen anyone get dressed and go to work they've never seen anyone say oh i gotta go i gotta get to work that, that's never ever passed their experience not one time And they grew up in a culture, an environment where it's all about the whims of the moment. Zero concept of future, planning, prudence. That's one massive culture that exists in America. Then you have this other major culture in America, which is work, 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 and be miserable. Check out this line. It was only after 24 years in the Ivy League that i started to think about this is amazing this is the sentence here 24 years that i started to think about what this system does to kids and how they can escape from it what it does to our society and how we can dismantle it wow (laughs) so it's so funny because you you kids who i mean there's another whole infrastructure set up to try to get kids into the most elite schools right and here's this professor saying oh my gosh I like, I know what it does to kids and the kids have to escape and I know what it does to our society and we have to dismantle it. <laughs> we fight so much for this thing that we think is good and it's actually horrible look behind the facade of seamless well adjustment and what you often find are toxic levels of fear, anxiety, and depression of emptiness and aimlessness and isolation This is Ezra Klein. He said, uh, Wall Street figured out that what colleges are producing excuse me, is that colleges are producing a large number of very smart, completely confused graduates, kids who have ample mental horsepower, an incredible work ethic, and no idea what to do next. So we just get these high achieving drones. So we have these two extremes in our culture. We have work. I've never, never seen anyone work. I don't even A job. I don't. And then you have people who just work, 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 nonstop, but no idea why and no idea what's next. Wow. What a funny, funny split. We'll talk much more about this as we, uh, as we go on, uh, Slater radio on Twitter, Mike Slater show on Facebook. We just started doing some Facebook lives. We do one every day. I might miss one here or there. I missed one the other day because my son went to the emergency room. So they got, can I get a little, a little grace on that? He's totally fine. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be dramatic when I said that. Um, he got two little stitches on his finger. He fell. So we were standing right next to him and he fell. I think we got it like, he sliced it on like the side of the oven or something. It was There like, must have been like a something sharp there when he fell back on his butt. And he sliced it right open and went to the emergency Anyway, so we didn't do a Facebook Live at that the next morning. I'm kind of tired, but we will almost every day. So join us on Facebook. Actually, I did a Facebook Live. Two days after that and explain the rest of that story. But anyway, Facebook Live, search for the Mike Slater show, and we can hang out every day there. Until then, we'll see you next Saturday. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word.
1: You are listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.